Hi, welcome to Back to Excited, episode 60. My name is Arvind. Joining me as always, my colleague from PensionPanPuppets.com. It's Acting the Fooliman. Hi, everybody. So, uh, we keep doing these podcasts and the keeps, Leafs keep losing the game before. Yeah. And it's very annoying. We keep having a timing issue. Um, you know, maybe we should refrain or something like that, but they're going to do another couple games probably before we have a chance to go again. I mean, the next one is on Easter Sunday. Uh, yeah. Uh, the next one is tomorrow, obviously, but then Easter yeah. Sunday is game six. So who knows if we're some kind of weird jinx, but uh, barring that, we're going to power ahead anyway and talk about this ongoing playoff series, which is now knotted 2-2 as it heads back to Boston for game five. Right. So, you know, big picture, um, and now it's a best of three where Boston has the uh, home ice advantage, and that's not an ideal situation if you're a Leafs fan. Uh, I mean, whatever happens from here on out, like barring two six nothing losses, um, it's not as if it, it hasn't been a close series, right? Like, we've said this, we said this before Game 1, we said this after Game 2, we're going to say this now. It's a close series between two good teams. Yeah, and, you, you know, I keep saying this, but really, if you thought the Leafs were really, really good after Game 3, you should not be that affected by Game 4 happening. Like, you really just shouldn't be that swayed by one single game. And the game last night, truth be told, was not that bad from a Leafs perspective. It's not like they got outplayed up and down the ice, which is what happened in Game 2. Um, and they mounted a pretty encouraging comeback. Now, I know we're in the playoffs, so moral victories are of very limited value because the truth is a loss is a loss, and you can only afford four of them in a series. Uh, sorry, three of them in a series. Four of them is fatal. But at the same time, it's like, well, sometimes that's going to happen, you know, unless you expected that the Leafs were going to realistically do this in four or five games um i don't think that was ever super likely you know this is about on track they're underdogs now i think it's fair to say just because of home ice advantage and the lack of nazim kadri but they are most definitely in this and if you're feeling totally hopeless well they might lose but it's far from a foregone conclusion right and like uh after game two i don't think the bruins have done anything to solve the leafs i think honestly these games come down to really small moments of execution, mm-hmm. right? And as it happened yesterday, I think the the crux of it is the Leafs' penalty kill um, really got kind of embarrassed by Boston's power play. Yeah. And Anderson didn't bail us out, which isn't a criticism of his. It's just that, you know, sometimes you get lucky and your goalie bails you out on those games, and that yesterday wasn't one of them for us. So 5-on-5, five five, I think... The Leafs played well. I think they, they maybe even outplayed the Bruins at 5-on-5. Five five. Although the one thing I would note is that um, like using single-game XG for this sort of thing is, is never a great idea because, for example, the uh, Brad Marchand's goal, right? Mm-hmm. the 2-0 the, the goal, that was like a 0.9 XG thing. Like He literally had the puck at the side of the net with no one near him. Yeah. Right? And, and you know, it, the current XG models that we have don't take, like, player uh, positioning and puck movement into account, and they're, they're flawed for that reason. But basically, overall, I think the Leafs played fine at, at 5v5. The only downside is that the um, Tavares line couldn't completely contain the Bergeron line, and I think to some extent we were expecting that, right? We weren't expecting to go a whole series with that line being completely shut down. They're too good for that. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, I was surprised it was working as well as it was. Like, I hope mm-hmm. it works that well again, but the reality is, this is the best line in the world. 
You and know, I guess we, we should have noted that it was two-thirds of that line because they, they yeah. moved Pasternak off that line and replaced him with Danton Heinen. But Brad Marchand and Patrice Bergeron alone can wreck you, and they did that. Yeah, and, you know, we were kind of expecting that they were going to do that at some point. But, you, you know, the truth is is that we were, we're still using Nikita Zaitsev as one of our matchup defensemen behind John Tavares. And, you know, notwithstanding there were some pretty ugly moments, they went about even in shot totals against Marchand. They were actually a little worse against Bergeron. But it's like, I just find myself thinking that my expectations against the Bergeron online are somewhere between total disaster and merely bad. And so the fact that we've played them pretty well for large stretches of this series, with frankly a defense pairing that I did not think was going to be able to do that, I think that's kind of encouraging. Like, it suggests that there is a roadmap by which the Leafs can win this series. There's absolutely a scenario where the Leafs win this in six or seven games, and you can totally see how it would happen, which I think a lot of people were iffy on at the beginning of the series. Like, they were just assuming, oh, Anderson has to steal it for them. Well, Anderson has to be good. We saw that last night. If he's merely ordinary, it's not enough. But he's a good goalie, and he can do that. It's mostly just like, I find myself trying to correct for the reaction there, which is to say, Bottom line, this team is strongly competitive um, and has been three games out of four. So I, I think that, that, by and large, it's pretty good, you know? <laughs> yeah, you can't expect a whole lot more. Um, did you think it was a good decision from Cassidy to split up Pasternak and um, Bergeron Marchand? Because the, the Pasternak line itself didn't do a whole lot at even strength in terms of shots, but Pasternak did get... Uh, a 5-on-5 goal, and then also a power play goal. Yes. Um, I thought it was a good idea, and this is not, you know, hindsight being twenty twenty. I did say this beforehand. I think we both said this, didn't we? Yeah, um, we, we both said, said we, yeah. we, we both said we're more scared of them with Pasternak off that line. Yeah, because the reality is I think they can put together multiple good lines rather than just one really good line, and that's generally more problematic. I still don't trust the Austin Matthews line to do a hell of a lot in its own zone. And so just any time they're having to face strong offensive competition, I get kind of scared. Right, and, and also Pasternak's a guy who, he's an elite shooter, yeah. right? So, you know, you only need to give up one chance, and that's, you know, basically what happened, right? Um, it, that, that trio, so DeBrusque, Krejci, Pasternak, you know, th- those are, DeBrusque and Krejci are still very good players, so it's not like Pasternak's playing with scrubs, unlike another European winger we'll talk about soon. Um, <laughs> but... Yeah, like it, that that group is still good, and they actually did they did fine against Austin Matthews, and somehow the our third line did very well against them. And again, we'll just we'll discuss that a little bit more in the future. But yeah, it, it's a little bit scary to see such an elite shooter on uh, like sp- split up from their best play drivers because both of those guys are so dangerous. Or sorry, all three of those guys are so dangerous in their own right. It, it's never fun to spend more time of the game worried. <laughs> Yeah, I just find myself thinking, well, once that happens, we just have to kind of go into a gunfight with them and hope for the best. You know what I mean? Like Austin Matthews, and to his credit, you know, he has started converting on chances the last couple of games. Um, He's been playing well in addition to that, I think. Um, He certainly had some really great moments offensively, like you're seeing the generation there. So, you know, we can win kind of a a wild battle, but we lost a 6-4 game last night. And the truth is, if you told me before the series what kind of game would I rather play, a 6-4 game is generally more to the Leafs' strength, I think, than the Bruins. Like, that's generally my preference. 
as to how this series would be played if I were drawing it up. But sometimes it's going to go against you because the Bruins are not incapable offensively. They're just a better defensive team. Um, so, yeah, I, I mean, I guess uh, the bottom line there is there's not a lot we can do about that. There's nothing that happened last night that strikes me as really damning in terms of can they do anything the last three games. Except the penalty kill has to be better than that. And the penalty mm -hmm. kill is such a... It's so easy to fall for small samples because literally it's one mistake. It's all it takes. And then suddenly it's like, well, now the penalty kill is bad. But it hasn't really been that impressive the whole series in terms of some mistakes. Like, any penalty kill looks a lot better when they don't let the, the, the opposing power play set up, right? And mm -hmm. we've had stretches where we've managed to prevent Boston doing that, where we keep sending the puck down the ice. But once they do get set up, it seems like they do not have much trouble drawing us out of position and then setting someone up for a pretty clean, uncontested shot at the net off a pass. And if we can't stop that happening, then it's going to be pretty ugly out there. <laughs> so that's the thing that does scare me of all the things that happened last night. Yeah. And it's just their their power play has so many good shooters on it. It's it's a hard power play to match. They're, they're very creative with how they use movement and like, it's almost like an NBA offense in, in some respects. Like that Charlie Coyle, or sorry, Charlie McAvoy goal, the first goal. Mm. That, that, that was nice, right? Like he passed the puck, immediately darted to like a soft spot on the ice. The Leafs didn't really know how to react. And a lot of power plays are quite static. Yeah. Um, theirs is not, right? Which is, which is cool. It, it, I think they're a well-coached team for sure. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like the Leafs have to... At this point, it's very just results-oriented. Like you can't, you can't give up two power play goals, right? It happened in game three for the Leafs and... You're very rarely going to lose games where you get two on special teams. Yeah, I mean that is the reality. You know, two goals is two goals. Like that's the thing. Is uh, so many of those stats that we talk about in terms of like, oh, when this team scores first, their record's very good, and when that guy scores for them, their record is very good. It's like, well, when they get goals, I'm yeah. sure their record is better. So, yeah, exactly. You know, because you're you're like filtering out all the times where they got shut out or only scored one goal or whatever. Like it's yeah, yeah, it, it's a bit obvious. Um, the other thing I would mention. This is, I guess, something that maybe points to the Leafs having more trouble than the top line shot and expected goal numbers would suggest. The Leafs' dominance in those areas were driven primarily by their, not primarily, but in large part by their third and fourth lines. Mm. And in general, you don't want that to happen because your third and fourth lines, even if they're getting a lot of shot attempts, they're probably not great finishers. And it's less likely that those turn into goals. Like, I, I care a lot more that the Tavares line and the Matthews line are dominating than the fourth line. And th this is kind of actually a pet peeve of mine, but like I wrote a piece after game three saying that the uh, third line of Nylander, Marlowe, and Brown was an issue, which that aged brilliantly, um, <laughs> considering they had a phenomenal game. But one of the things I suggested was, okay, well, can you move like one of the fourth line people up, right? Is there anything different that you could do? Mm -hmm. And people were commenting, it's like, why would we break up the fourth line? And like, it's the fourth line. It's the fourth most important line on the team. They, they are not a priority. Yeah, like you should never be afraid to break up your fourth line ever. You know, if your fourth line is really doing extraordinarily well, um, your argument is to give them more ice time and make them the third line. That's a rare scenario. But really what you should be doing is take the good players and promote them, you know, which I think would be good. Now, the third line, as you were saying, did better than I think we would have expected last night, given the yes. wingers. 
Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I, the article I wrote in the wake of Game 3 was just that, like, this third line is a problem because in about 75 or 80 minutes during the regular season, they got totaled. The only line of William Nylander, the only line with William Nylander on it that did not post good shot metrics this year. Mm-hmm. Um, in Game 3, they got pretty much, like, not run over, but, like, they just did nothing, right? They contributed so little offensively. And it's a line that doesn't make sense to me in theory or in practice because you don't really have elite finishers on it. You have one really good play driver in Nylander, but he's a play driver who can't finish. He needs a finisher. Mm-hmm. It doesn't really make sense to me defensively because as much as I like Nylander, he's still not great in his own zone. So you're not going to put that on line on matchup duty or anything. So it, it didn't make sense to me. Now, that said, they had a very productive game. Uh, and they, they actually beat up on Boston's second, and, second third, and fourth lines. They, they didn't play much at all against the Bergeron line. And that was really shocking to me. Um, I think to some extent they were helped by some really sloppy Bruins play. Mm-hmm. Like, I think Matt Grizzlick um, had, just had a brutal game. Like, he was one of, the wor- one, one of the worst games I've seen from a depth defenseman that did not end up with like, him being minus four. Mm-hmm. But like, I think he had something like, a course, like four shots for when he was on the ice and 29 shots against. Yeah, that's appalling. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, that's absolutely, absolutely horrific. So... I think he in particular had a bad game. I noticed a couple kind of bad turnovers from him. Um, a lot of the offense from this line is like tip-based. It's like Nylander gets the puck, passes it to the point, and the the guy at the point just tries to get it through and tries to get a high tip. And that's what a lot of the Leafs' offense is, but this is that's literally the, this line's only <laughs> like real way to generate offense, I find. Yeah, it's like you're and not going to have too many plays where Connor Brown suddenly comes in and makes like a windmill dig and like beats three guys. So. Yeah, and, and, and like not even stuff as fancy as that, but like just Marlowe and Brown don't really generate many shots. They just like they, they rely on tips and rebounds and that's it. They can't really create their own shot at all. They can't really find space, find soft spots and get high quality chances away without kind of the, the chaos and the change of direction that comes from tips and rebounds. Mm-hmm. So... I mean, they did well, but I'm still not really convinced by that group. The thing about that line is, once Nazem Kadri is gone, which he is for this series, your options are so limited. Like, you can say, okay, promote Tyler Ennis, promote Trevor Moore. And I think that there's a good case to do that, maybe. But neither of those guys is really, like, a premier offensive hockey player. Yeah, it's like, you, that's a, it's a marginal move at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. You know, I can see it. I, you know, I see um, there's a lot of criticism of Mike Babcock going around, as there is pretty much at all times this season, it feels like, but certainly more in the aftermath of a loss. But, you know, there are some people who are saying that, you know, it's a really glaring mistake to put Nylander with these bad wingers. But then the answer is, okay, move Nylander with Matthews, which in, you know, a perfect world is my preferred thing. But then it's who plays center? Oh, it's Patrick Marlowe. The guy who's apparently yeah. so useless, we have to get Nylander away from him. And now he's trying to run a third line by himself. It's a bit like, I don't know if there's a real consistency there. Now you can say, look, it's more important than anything to have two lines and have them absolutely dominate. And maybe you just play them both, you know, both the Matthews and Tavares lines, like 20 plus minutes a night. But I don't know. I don't think that it's indefensible the way that he's done it. I just no, don't know that it, there's it, a right answer. Yeah, it's not indefensible. And that's a point I made in the article where it's like, mm-hmm. I, I don't think Babcock's in love with that line. 
Mm-hmm. It's certainly not his first choice. Mm. But, you know, you're dealt an imperfect hand when you're one of your better players decides to be an idiot. Yeah, and that's, you know, we talked about it and, um, you know, we did our best to maintain some balance on that. I think we were legitimately frustrated with the refereeing in that game and it was emotional climate. But as we said, that was really, really stupid. And you don't want to make any long-term decisions about a player, one, off of one incident, and two, when he's at low value. Um, and Nazem Kadri is still a really good player on a really good contract. He's still a valuable contributor. But at some point, we probably have to have a conversation about how much exactly of a problem is it that he keeps doing this shit when it matters? Because... You know, from the cold-eyed perspective, you say, okay, um, he goes over the line sometimes, he gets himself suspended, and misses five, six, seven games a year. But this is twice now in critical series, consecutive years, that he's gotten himself taken out for the most important part of the season, for, frankly, the only part of the season that we care about. And I know that this is on the verge of falling into the small sample trap. But at the same time, it's like, he needs to learn some self-control really yesterday <laughs> um, to stop doing this stuff if he's going to be a valuable contributor to a contender. Because if, he, if we're constantly on eggshells thinking this guy's going to get himself taken out for another five games, um, that's really problematic and detrimental to his value. So, so, you know, underneath all that frustration that I think we're constantly feeling because we're seeing this team play pretty well and we're thinking, geez, if we only had Kadri, we might even be favored. We might even have won last night. Um, there probably is a larger point about how Kadri's behavior and the fact that he's basically removed any benefit of the doubt the league might have given him in these situations, um, how that affects his value to the team going forward. I'm not saying, like, you know, trade the guy for a bag of pucks or anything like that, but I don't know. I find myself asking questions about his value now that I don't think are just emotional reactions, I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah. No, I, I agree with that. Um, going back to the third line issue, mm-hmm. I don't expect to see any change, uh, and certainly I don't expect Babcock to make, um, to kind of concentrate his good players on the top two lines, especially if not for game five, because mm-hmm. we're going to be away from home, and you know, you, the, the Marlowe, Brown, uh, Kapanen line, wouldn't be great in the best of times. I definitely don't want that against Patrice Bergeron. Yeah, that could get scary really quick. <laughs> I mean, not that Nylander Marlowe Brown is like much better, but at least there's like a bit more of a, um, I, a bit more of a chance that they'll sustain some offensive pressure. Th- th- what Kapanen does have in that role above uh, Nylander, and this is assuming that Marlowe can play center competently, which I don't know if he can. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what Kapanen does have is that he he can be a bit of a one man band on offense, where it's just like okay, like just just race ahead faster than everyone, and you know we're not expecting that line to do much offensively. So just transition the puck there and keep it there while we get a change for some actual good players. Pretty much, and you know to be honest, throughout this series, at times I've been a little frustrated, maybe with that element of Kapanen, where it seemed like he would speed ahead and he would outrace his own hands. Or, like, there would be not a lot generated off one of those rushes. When not a lot is there to happen anyway, that becomes less of a, of a detriment, frankly. So it's like, I'm not so much worried about you not, you know, starting a play for Austin Matthews now. I'm not really going to fuss about you not starting a play for Pat Marlowe. So, 
Yeah, I, I mean, I think I can see the case for it there. Yeah, so it's also, this game's going to be really interesting to see Game 5 because, you know, I, I don't know what Cassidy is going to do, right, with, with regards to spitting up that top line or not. Mm-hmm. It, it worked for them in the sense that the Bergeron, Marchand, Heinen line did very, very well against uh, Tavares and, and the Muzzin pairing. Right, like as mm-hmm. pretty good in terms of shots, and then even better in terms of goals. It was like three to one. Yeah. Right. Or actually, I think even the goal that was scored by the by Hyman wasn't against that line. So it was it was probably like three to zero in terms of goals. Right. Mm-hmm. So they can be like, okay, well, you know, based on that, we can actually take that match and we'll keep them split up. Um, but you know, you can't also erase the fact that in games one and game three, the um, Tavares line got the better of Bergeron, Marchand, and, and Pasternak. Mm-hmm. Right, so yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure what he's going to do. There's arguments to put them together and say, okay, we have our top line. We can get them away from that matchup if we want, um, and we can, we still do trust them to win that matchup if they need to. Mm-hmm. Or they can say, uh, we'll split them up, and we'll, you know, we can force two good lines onto matchups that we like now, and we have more versatility that way. So I really don't know which way, which way they'd go. I think as a f- Leafs fan, I would prefer that they put that top line back together. Yeah, just because it makes it into one weapon, which is just, as good as it is, a little less scary to me than two weapons. But by the same token, I think that the usual instinct of coaches, especially in a playoff series, is when something works, do it again. Yeah. And so I will be surprised if we don't see that to at least start next game. If the Bruins get down late, then I think you yeah, might yeah, see it come back. But, you know. I, I wonder to what degree... Um, we're going to try and chase matchups because this, this is narrativizing, but something that people brought, have brought up is that like, maybe the reason the Leafs got jumped in game two is like they're, they're always scrambling for the matchup, mm-hmm. right? And it results in being discombobulated or whatever. And I don't know if that's actually true. It's hard to say. I mean, Mike Babcock did not just start being a matchup coach. Yeah, exactly. But, like he, um... but, but it's rarely this extreme. Yeah, um, right. Because most very aggressive line... about it, and you know what? As we mentioned, it was really the first seven minutes where they got absolutely hammered. So if you want to say they were still finding their feet and this didn't really help them, I think you have a bit more of an argument when you say it's isolated. I mean, they didn't play super well the rest of the night, but it was so much worse in that first few minutes where you could see that like there was a compounding effect maybe from being discombobulated. I don't know, but. I find it plausible. I don't know if it's true. That's the way yeah, I put it. Yeah, that's basically exactly how I feel on, on this. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, but I think Mike Babcock is kind of how he is. Um, notwithstanding, I know people are pissed at him, but I haven't seen a decision this series that I really thought, okay, that's a glaring error on his part. There have been a couple things that I disagreed with. Like, I wasn't sure about Nylander with Kadri early, but that's moot now. Um, if you told me beforehand he was going to use Muzzin Zaitsev as the matchup pairing, I probably would have had an aneurysm. But the truth is, he did it, and it's worked much better than I thought it would. And I thought he was going to use Riley Hainsey, which I did not have high hopes for either. Um, I like relying on Jake Gardner as a rule, but I don't think Jake's been at his best this series. I don't think he's 100%. Yeah, I, I think it's pretty clear he's not 100%. Yeah. And, and I think the most obvious 
reason we can tell that is is because Babcock isn't playing him that much. Yeah, if he were, like, you would immediately see, you, you know, in the last uh, two years of playoff series, Jake Gardner was playing easily 20-plus minutes all the time, like, every night. And so the fact that that's not happening and he's leaving that third pair, that is really suggestive. He even said before the series, Babcock said, you know, he's a good player and I'm going to play him a lot. And so if he's not doing that, I think it's fair to say it's not by inclination, it's by necessity. I mean, yeah, especially given the history, as you mentioned. Like, it, mm-hmm. we have two previous playoff series where he plays Jake Gardner as much as he humanly can. Um, in the regular season, Gardner plays in very high leverage situations. That hasn't been the case here. It, it seems obvious that he's not 100% correct. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, that's very unfortunate for us. It hurts us. And we've survived it better than maybe I thought we, we would. So... Yeah, I mean, the reality is they are clearly competitive. I, I suppose the most encouraging thing is that the Bergeron-Marchand-Pasternak grouping, however it's arranged, whether it's as, as a trio or over two lines, um, aside from last night, they haven't really totally destroyed us. And that was always the fear against the Bruins. If we're surviving against that line, we are absolutely in with a chance. The rest of the time. I mean, even as good as those players did last night, we brought it to 5-4 plus an empty net or against by the end of it, which I thought was really encouraging. Again, at 5-on-5 last night, I thought that was an encouraging game, you know? As much as I'm, you know, not happy that we're tied instead of up 3-1, I can't point to anything specific other than the penalty kill is a glaring wound and Freddie needs to be quite good for us to really be competitive, but that's just kind of how it is with us, you know? That was yeah, and, and I guess the only thing, again, I'll, I'll, I'll mention this. The, we need the top-line guys to, to succeed more than they did last night. Yeah. Right? And like, the, um, the Matthews and Tavares lines were, were, like, I think right around parity in terms of shot share, and maybe a little bit higher in terms of expected goals. But, like, I don't want the William Nylander line to be the one that has, like, 85% expected goals. No, although it's fair to say also that if Matthews is around parity in shots, but he's shooting like he can. Yeah. You know, and, and he was last night. So you have to give him that angle. But yeah, you know, the, the Tavares line is kind of what makes this team go. There was a debate uh, this week on Lee's Twitter about, you know, who the best player is at this point in time on this team. Leaving aside goaltending, which is hard to compare, it's John Tavares. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> I'm sorry, but like... You can say it won't be John Tavares at some point in the not-that-distant future, but, like, he makes this team go, so... Yeah, and, I mean, look, we have probably unfair expectations for that line because we need them to be that good, right? Like, Mm -hmm. they had, you know, two really solid games, or two really excellent games, two brilliant games, really, and the Leafs won those two games. It's... If they can dominate, right, we're going to to win, and that sounds reductive. You know, your best players have to be your best players. Yeah. But... It's but not just that they have to be better than from the depth. Just um, there's a. I, I read a thing once, and it was sets of um, contradictory proverbs, mm-hmm. and it was uh, you know they put like early bird gets the worm, but haste makes waste. So you mm-hmm. know, hurry up but don't rush. And I always think that about playoff cliches, which is your best players have to be your best players. Which, by the way, I actually believe. And then someone's like, but you need contributions all up and down the lineup. And so if you put those two things together, it's like, well, we just need our players to be better than their players. <laughs> but uh, I do think that it's true that John Tavares is uh, right now the linchpin for this team. I used to say, as Jake Gardner goes, so go the Leafs. 
because he was so essential to us in a defensive role. We've made some upgrades and some adjustments here so that we're surviving his injury. But at this point, we're dependent on Tavares to survive and thrive against the best line in the world. And so... And if he's not against that line, we need him to, like, outscore whatever depth line the Bruins put in front of him. Yeah, like, then you have to go, like, plus two, (laughs) you know, um, every night against uh, whoever you're playing. So, yeah, you know, that's what it's going to come down to, is um, the performance of the John Tavares line. As much as, you know, the fourth line has been fun with Trevor Moore doing some stuff and, you know, throwing his ass around. Um, Really, it does come down to just we've got star power and it needs to tell. And so I hope it does. Yeah. Um, You wanted to talk a bit about William Nylander again, because there was more criticism about him. And uh, I I didn't watch the intermission show. I'm not sure if you did. I did not. No, uh, I took a mental health break from the intermission shows. Probably a good idea. Yeah. Look, uh, the thing about William Nylander, and I think that, you know, this is well-trod ground for people who listen to us regularly. So I'm going to get to the point real quick on this one. He's doing well. I think given his line mates, you can say that he is in a position where it's really tough to score goals or to generate large amounts of offense. At the same time, you know, the puck needs to go in at a certain rate for him to really sustain his value. You've written about that in a larger sense. Um, You know, if William Nylander is actually a below average shooter, that hurts his value. And we keep hoping that it's going to regress in some way. And, and, you know, it's not like he's been bad this series. I think he had the one unfortunate big mistake issue, that own goal against in Game 2. And beyond that, he's actually been pretty good to my eye and to the numbers. At the same time, to get full value out of him, we really do need him to score. So I, by and large, I'm on side with the stats people. And in this series of like seven games anyone can go hot or cold and that's just how it is funnily enough the only goal against he's been on has been the own goal <laughs> what the that bruins haven't it? scored a goal when he's been on the ice he's just he scored one on his own team yeah. he did that to make it fair because otherwise it was a mismatch but um yeah i mean you know mike babcock was saying last night he was really impressed with nylander and i'm well, sure yeah i mean how, how yeah. could you not be he's dragging two anchors up and down the ice yeah and you know I think that, you know, there's a tendency to assume that Mike Babcock doesn't know what's going on with his team. I think he's aware of most things. I think he's certainly aware that um, William Nylander is not right now in the position to rack up huge counting stats. Um, so, yeah, you know, it's a good game there. You'd really like to see some evidence of some finishing talent. And I do have a little bit of time for the argument that, you know, all of this is great, but the puck has to go in for him at least a certain amount of the time. But over seven games, you can't really say much more than, gee, I really hope that it does. In the larger picture, you can say, okay, is this uh, a consistent flaw or is this him being the victim of some short-term variance? And I think, you know, you've done some, some good stuff exploring that question and we're still watching it develop at this point. So, yeah. All the stuff about him being, like, at fault for the Leafs losing in the series and all that sort of stuff, that's absolute nonsense. Categorically, like, that's horseshit. Yeah, I am reluctant to even give it a ton of time, but the fact is that a certain number of people have decided that he is a problem for whatever reasons, and they're upset at him because he's greedy and Swedish and pretty and blonde and all this sort of stuff. And there's not much you can do 
with that. You, you know, I see a lot of people constantly trying to fight the good fight by rationally rebutting those arguments. You know, like by quoting numbers or facts or things like that um, about how well he's actually playing. And it's a bit like you're just arguing against the ghost in someone's head at that point. You know, when they've conceived of him as being this uh, greedy me for selfish, ineffective, does not get back on defense, lazy player. Really, the only thing that's going to fix that is him putting up huge counting stats, which are hard to deny, and the team winning. And so, you know, I certainly hope that he's able to do that. But at this point, it's probably just going to have to be a certain number of people are always just going to be wrong about William Nylander. That's kind of what happened with Jake Gardner. A certain number of people were just never going to give him appropriate credit. And then you can have a conversation with people who are a bit more reasonable about it, about like how good he really is, about how detrimental his flaws really are. But when someone starts out with the idea that his value is negative a billion, you're not going to be able to drag them back to positivity. So, Yeah. That's probably an argument against me actually talking about William Nylander in this context as much as I do, but I'm trying to reach some sort of higher plane of wisdom where I just start ignoring some of that nonsense and just trying to engage with the player reasonably. So self-improvement. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's all we go for. Uh, was there anything else you wanted to mention? Um, just want to emphasize, look, look, this, this is close and maybe closer than some people realized, but it's going to be a hard-fought series. They're in with a chance, and for all the lamentation and upset that sports gives us, in with a chance is a lot better than a lot of things that we've had in the past. So, yeah, let's hope for the best. All right, um, so with that being said, thank you all for listening. You can catch all of mine and Fuleman stuff at pensionmanpuppets.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at RV and AT Fuleman. We'll see you after Game 6.